1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, the second of our shows for the 2018 Welcome Book Prize. Here's Lindsay Fitzharris on her book, The Butchering Art, and then Ayobami Adebayo on her novel, Stay With Me. Lindsay Fitzharris received her doctorate in the history of science, medicine and technology at the University of Oxford and was a postdoctoral research fellow at the Wellcome Institute. She is the creator of the popular website The Surgeon's Apprentice and she writes and presents the YouTube series Under the Knife. She has written for The Guardian, The Lancet, The New Scientist, Penthouse and The Huffington Post and Medium and appeared on PBS, Channel 4, the BBC and National Geographic. And Lindsay is also the author of The Butchering Art joseph lister's quest to transform the grisly world of victorian medicine which has been shortlisted for the 2018 welcome book prize lindsay welcome to little atoms
2: thanks for having me on so the book is
1: ostensibly a story of joseph lister but you begin with the confusingly named robert liston yes um who was a early victorian surgeon a renowned surgeon particularly renowned for his speed tell me something about him
2: yeah, so when I was thinking about writing this book, I actually wanted to write it about Robert Liston um, because he's sort of this larger-than-life character. He's six two, he's incredibly tall for the Victorian period, and he, as you as you note, he was very fast. He was actually the fastest knife in the West End, so he could hold you down with his left arm and he could take off your leg in about 30 seconds, which is exactly what you'd want from your surgeon in a pre-anesthetic era. And there's all these incredibly funny stories around him. For instance, one of his patients got onto the table and was going to have a bladder stone removed and then quite sensibly decided that he didn't want to go through with this. So he jumped off the table. He ran across the room. He locks himself in a closet and Liston, all six, two of him runs after him, uh, rips the door off the closet and drags this poor guy back to the table and removes the stone. So I was thinking when I was writing this book, I thought this is a great character. This is someone um, everybody can enjoy. But the problem with Robert Liston is that he doesn't He doesn't shift the paradigm. He doesn't actually do anything that changes the way we understand the body. He does, however, perform the first ever operation in Britain under ether or under anesthesia. He doesn't discover it himself. It's brought from America. He doesn't think it's even going to work. Um, And so he comes into the operating theater in 1846, in December of 1846 in London, and he tells everybody to time him. And you can almost hear the ripple of pocket watches as they pull their watches out to time the great Robert Liston. And it works. And this is this is the moment that we conquer pain. The patient is insensible. And I wanted to start the story there because I felt that if anybody out there has ever thought about the history of surgery, which they may not have, um, but they probably think of that moment when we discover anesthesia. But actually, surgery became much more dangerous after that moment because surgeons still didn't understand that germs existed. But they were more willing to pick up the knife. They were more willing to go deeper in the body because the patient was now knocked out. And what was incredible about that moment in 1846 is that a 17-year-old Joseph Lister was in the audience that day.
1: So remind us what the what Liston's operation before the ether one would have been like <laughs> for the patient.
2: Oh, well, I mean, at the time that... He kind of walks into the scene in my book. He's he's very famous because he had removed a 45-pound scrotal tumor in under four minutes. 45 pounds. Um, I don't even know how it got to that stage. I think a lot of people feared going under the knife so much that they just avoided at all costs going into these hospitals. Um, but when Robert Liston was operating in a pre-anesthetic era, um, you could imagine these operating theaters were like real theaters in the true sense. They were filled to the rafters with spectators. Some of these people bought tickets to come see the operation, to see the life and death struggle play out before them. They would have been carrying the grime and dirt of everyday life with them as well. Um, It was an incredibly unhygienic place. The operating table itself may not have even been washed down. The instruments may not have been washed. Uh, The surgeons certainly didn't wash his hands. Liston would have worn an apron that would have been blood spattered. And it was said that the surgeons carried around a cadaverous smell with them that those in the profession called good old hospital stink. So this was a very unhygienic, a very unclean environment. And people just had no concept of germs. Why would you wash your hands if they were just going to get dirty? with the next patient. That was sort of the logic. And you would want your apron to be as bloody as possible because it would show your seniority that you had done all these operations. So that was really the medical world that Joseph Lister steps into. Um, And he's surrounded by people like Robert Liston. There's another man named James Syme who's known as the Napoleon of surgery. And he also performs some very gruesome operations. and, And he's also in the book. So all of these, what I call them butchers, they wouldn't have referred to themselves as butchers. But all of these men who learned that Feed was the most important thing and, of course, had no concept of germs.
1: Well, I'm going to come back to James Syme in a moment, but tell us something about Joseph Lister first. Introduce us to him. He seems, personality-wise, not like most of all of these other eminent Victorian surgeons at the time.
2: Yeah, you're right. And I think that that's the charm, at least for me, about uh, Joseph Lister. So Joseph Lister is a Quaker. He comes to University College London in the 1840s to enter medical school, and he comes bringing a microscope, which is a very unusual instrument at this time in medicine. In fact, it's really kind of dealt with with skepticism. And um, the reason why he has a microscope is his father used the microscope, so he grew up around the microscope. And this really sets him up later for understanding germs. But anyway, he's a Quaker. He's very quiet. I kind of like to think of him as this sort of clean black and white figure, because he would have been wearing very somber clothes as part of the Quaker faith. He's this very clean black and white figure against this backdrop of debauching medical world. And the surgeons in in the 1840s wearing almost their gaudy colors. And they're trying to prove that they're professionals because at this point, surgery isn't a professional career. Um, It's more like a craft. So he's surrounded by these larger than life characters, these boisterous medical students. They used to um, have a reputation of being boozers and they smoked smoked cigars to mask the smell of cadavers that they were dissecting. And here comes this very quiet 17-year-old Joseph Lister into this World.
1: I want to talk about three key characters in his life. So, first of all, his father. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, Joseph Jackson, um, his relationship with his father is so important. And this was something that I really wanted to bring out in the butchering art, because ideas are never created in a vacuum. And Lister is very much a product of his times. And he's a product of the people who come along in his life. And his father, as you say, he was a tinker of microscopes. So Lister grows up around the microscope. And also, they have a very close relationship throughout Lister's entire life. For instance, when he has a mental breakdown while he's in medical school, it's His father, who encourages him to go back into medical school. But what I find so interesting about this relationship with his father and with other people in the book is that at the end of Lister's life, he actually wanted his personal correspondence, his letters, his diaries, everything to be destroyed because he wanted his story to be told through his scientific achievements alone. And thankfully for me, this didn't happen. So I really enjoyed bringing out this sort of inner sanctum of Joseph Lister's life and all of these people. Again, um, nothing's created in a vacuum. And I I hope that people really get a sense of the influence that these people had on him. Um, and I always joke that because Lister didn't want his personal story told, he probably would have hated my book. But it is a delight to be able to shed light on on this Victorian figure.
1: And you mentioned James Syme, who was a, another eminent Victorian surgeon. He also became a, something of a, a, a mentor to Lister and indeed his father-in-law.
2: Yeah, he becomes James Syme. Lister travels up to Edinburgh, up to Scotland, and he meets James Syme. And Syme is the one who really encourages him to get back into medicine, to pursue surgery. Kind of um, inspires a new passion in surgery after his mental breakdown. And they become very close. And he falls in love with Syme's daughter, which is a great career move. And um, and it, throughout his whole life, he kind of looks up to Syme. And it was Lister's great fortune that he moved to Scotland at that time because Scotland, for very reasons, which I talk about in the book, is more scientifically minded at this point than England is. So I really feel that if he had remained in England or remained in London, he probably wouldn't have developed his antiseptic theories.
1: And then he spends many years researching into post-operative infections, not really getting anywhere. And so the third person I wanted to mention, a key figure in his life, um, would of course be Louis Pasteur. Um, Let's talk about the situation at this time in which germ theory as an idea is developing. What did people believe?
2: So people believed before germ theory. Generally, there were many things that theories about how disease was spread, but the predominant one was called miasma theory, and that was the idea that miasma or small particles that bad odors basically caused disease. And you can see the sense in this because places that smelled bad or were filthy tended to be disease-ridden. But it wasn't exactly the right explanation because there are diseases like cholera that are spread in different ways, and so it didn't. it, it wasn't an all a full-on explanation, and the medical world was really struggling to understand, especially why wounds became infected in hospitals. And this was something that surgeons uh, were dealing with on a daily basis. You know, they do an amputation, the wound would become infected, or perhaps someone would come in with a compound fracture and the leg was already infected. What was causing that infection? And they they would they had a saying at this time that if a wound healed simply, it was said to to heal sweetly. But if it became infected, it healed sourly. So there was a real distinct smell that came with a septic condition. And so Joseph Lister comes across Louis Pasteur's work on why wine vats are spoiling. And Louis Pasteur is saying that it's bacteria and germs that are causing this wine to spoil. And Lister begins to wonder if the same thing that's causing the wine to spoil, which would smell sour, is also causing the wounds to sour in his patients. And that's when he begins to experiment. I like to say that the butchering is a love story between science and medicine because it is the first time that a scientific principle, which is Louis Pasteur's germ theory, is applied to medical practice through the development of antisepsis. And so in this way, this is the story of the birth of scientific surgery.
1: Lister is not... The only person that knows what's going on here, there's another uh, rather unfortunate figure, Ignaz Semmelweis. Um, yeah. Who was he and what happened to yeah. him?
2: Everywhere I go, I've been going on book tours through the US, the UK, and there's so many Semmelweis fans out there. Um, lots of people are really fascinated with his story. And he is in the book. He's mentioned in the book for the same reason, again, ideas aren't created in a vacuum. And a lot of this stuff is influencing Lister, impacting his own theories. Semmelweis is a doctor working in Austria, and he is putting together this idea that, that if you wash your hands infection rates on the hospital wards go down particularly with birthing women on these hospital wards and He sets up this device so that doctors and surgeons can wash their hands before going to attend patients. And they really criticize him. And he ends up in an insane asylum. They call him the hand washer. And it's just this really terrible end. But I like to remind people that what he's doing is still very different to what Lister was doing. Because although Semmelweis or people like Florence Nightingale were putting together this idea that improved hygiene was having an impact on infection rates, they still weren't coming up with the device with which disease was spread, which was germs. And until you understand that germs exist, there's no way to systematically implement any kind of system.
1: Bring us forward to Lister's about to perform an operation on a, on a young boy up in Scotland who's broken his leg, James Greenlees. What's different now about this situation?
2: So at this point, Lister has read Louis Pasteur's work. Um, he's beginning to wonder if the bacteria that's making the wine vats spoil also is spoiling the wounds in his patients. And he realizes that if you come in with a simple fracture, meaning that the skin doesn't break, that usually there's no incident. The patient heals and leaves the hospital. But if the skin is broken, that's when infection sets in. So he's starting to think well, something is coming from outside of the body and is infecting the wound. And that could be bacteria or germs, as Pasteur has pointed out. So he needs to wait for a compound fracture to come in. And he doesn't have to wait long because there's a lot of accidents in Glasgow. It was a very dangerous time to be alive. And this poor 11-year-old boy is crossing the street and his leg is crushed by a wagon wheel. And it takes many hours before he's even brought to the hospital. So you can imagine by the time he gets into Lister's hands, the wound is very dirty. It's it's been exposed to the air for several hours. It's been exposed not only just to the air, but to the Glasgow city. Life. But Lister at this point has decided that what is needed is an antiseptic to kill the germs. Um, there's several ways that you can kill germs. You can kill it through fire, which isn't appropriate uh, with a living patient. So he decides antiseptics, and he's going to use something called carbolic acid. And so he takes this carbolic acid, he cleans out the wound, and over the course of six weeks, he continuously irrigates the wound, he cleans it out, he rebandages it, and the boy walks out with two legs, which is incredible and very, very important because. Because a lot of the people coming into these hospitals were poor. And if they lost a limb, it could really impact their livelihood.
1: So that moment we talked about at the beginning where Robert Liston uses ether and basically suddenly operations are revolutionized. Everybody does that. Pain is finished. At this point, you would think the same thing would happen. <laughs> but still, Lister's ideas take a while to get common acceptance. Why?
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. Ether is accepted very quickly. I think because of its magical demonstration, I mean, it's it's very clear that the patient is insensible, they're no longer screaming, they can attest to the fact that there's no pain. And I think it's a lot easier for Ether to be accepted in that case. As far as the pushback that Lister receives, it takes him decades before this paradigm is finally shifted. And today, it just seems so crazy to us. It's seems like such a basic thing that germs exist. But remember, there's this young man that's coming along, and he's telling you that there's these little creatures, and they're invisible, but I can see them with this microscope. Believe me, they're killing your patients. And it was very difficult for people to understand. And I think the other part of that was that he was essentially telling these older surgeons that they had been inadvertently killing their patients all along. And as you know, amusing as some of these stories are, it was very dangerous to go into medicine at this time. It was before antibiotics before mass uh, vaccinations. So a lot of surgeons died as a result of just going into the profession. They were there to save people's lives. And I think it was a hard pill to swallow to think that they may have been killing their patients all
0: along.
1: So there's one more operation I'd like to talk about that, I mean, doesn't go all the way to getting Lister's ideas accepted, but certainly helps. And that's an operation he performs on Queen Victoria herself.
2: Yes, that's right. Um, there's a couple of really cinematic moments, I feel, in Lister's story. I'm actually working on getting this uh, this movie made um, because I think that there's these great moments. And the Queen Victoria operation is certainly one of them. He is called to the bedside of Queen Victoria. She has a large abscess under her armpit. It's not a very sexy uh, <laughs> condition she's suffering from, but it's become very infected at this point. And those kinds of things could certainly kill you. I mean, they even kill people today. We have to remember that doctors are still battling sepsis conditions, um, superbugs in hospitals. Um, So it's still not entirely a controllable situation, but because we know that germs exist, we're able to proactively defend against it as well as treat it better when it arises. So listeners called to the bedside of Queen Victoria. And at this point, he has this large contraption called a donkey engine. It's called a donkey engine because it's this sort of ridiculous machine on three legs. and, And it's a bellowed machine and it would spray carbolic acid all through the air because he felt that the air also needed to be sanitized he later abandons this but at this point he thinks the air needs to be sanitized and someone else is working the bellows and accidentally sprays this carbolic acid into the queen's face and she was not at all amused but over the course of several days he's able to treat her the infection starts to disappear and he would later quip that he was the only person in the world that could uh, stick a knife in the queen and survive the incident
1: just one more thing from me then. What does it mean for you that the book has been shortlisted to the Welcome Prize?
2: Oh, it's been a complete surprise to me. Um, I've had a lot of relationships with the Welcome. I, I studied at the Welcome unit at Oxford University when I did my DPhil. Um, and of course, I was attached to the Welcome when I was doing my postdoc. They funded my postdoc. And I use their collection all the time on my social media accounts on my YouTube channel. So it's really wonderful for me to be shortlisted for this prize. And I'm, I'm just so honored to be included along the other five fantastic books in this, uh, this shortlist. So I'm excited to see what happens on April 30th.
1: So I've been talking to Lindsay Fitzharris about her book, The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's quest to transform the Grizzly world of Victorian medicine. It's out in the UK from Allen Lane. And as we've already mentioned, it's shortlisted for the 2018 Welcome Book Prize. Lindsay, thank you so much for telling me
2: about it. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: I'm Ben Goldacre and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Ayabami Adebayo's stories have appeared in a number of magazines and anthologies and one was highly commended in the 2009 Commonwealth Short Story Prize. Her debut novel, Stay With Me, was shortlisted for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction in 2017 and has just this year been shortlisted for the Welcome Prize. Ayabami, welcome to Little Atoms.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Can you describe Stay With Me for us, first of all?
3: So Stay With Me is the novel of a marriage that's coming apart. So it begins with this couple. It's set in the mid-1980s in Nigeria, and this couple, they've been married for about four years, and they don't have any children. And because of this, they're facing a lot of pressure from their family members, particularly the husband's family, and the pressure is particularly for him to get a second wife. Which it does, and that's kind of the beginning of everything sort of unravelling in this relationship.
1: So the book is narrated by both Yejidi and Akin, her husband. Um, Why did you choose to have the two narrators?
3: You know, I felt with this book that um, I wanted to examine not just what it meant to be a mother, but how we also interpret fatherhood and um, the feelings that people have, the complicated emotions that people go through when they have to deal with infertility. And also the sense that I got when I started writing it was that I needed both perspectives in order to fully communicate what was going on. So the way I often put it is that I think that anyone can know what happens in this marriage from listening to one of them. But I feel like you can only understand it from hearing from both perspectives. And I suppose that I've also always been interested in how easy it is for two people, three people, four people to look at the same thing and see something totally different. And what that means, particularly in interacting with each other whether it's in a marriage or it's in a community, the fact that we sometimes have such different perceptions about the same things.
1: Tell us something about both our main narrators then. Who are they?
3: Yeah, so I'll begin with her uh, husband that comes to the wife. Aki is as um, a young man, is like in his mid-30s when the novel begins, and he's a very successful banker he's the first son of his mom, and he comes from a polygamous family and because of that there's a sense of competition between the women and they transfer that onto their children so his mother has all these expectations of him he's supposed to be successful he's supposed to get married and have this number of children by this time and to some extent I think that Aki has bought into what everybody tells him masculinity means and he succeeded on almost every front except that he's been married for a while now and they don't have children so he's a successful man in other ways and he sort of defined himself and his identity along all of this expectations so it's very difficult for him to reconcile his reality with all of the expectations that he's trying to leave off so now his wife Yejide is um also, in, I mean, she's like in her late 20s when this book begins, and she comes also from a polygamous family, but there's a twist to her home background, and it's that she lost her mother when she was very young. In like fact, her mother dies while giving birth to her. So she's always felt that there's this gap in her life that needs to be filled. That loss is sort of magnified by the fact that she then grows up in a family where there's really nobody that cares for her she doesn't have any direct siblings she has step-siblings half siblings but she feels that she doesn't really have anyone in her life she doesn't have a kind of a permanent relationship in the way that a mother-daughter relationship often is So by the time she gets married, she thinks that her husband is this person, is the person she's been waiting for all her life. So she's sort of willing to put up with a lot of things because she wants this relationship to last. But when he then marries another wife, it shakes that foundation and she begins to, more than before, want to have a child because she figures that um, it's not as... um, Subject, it's a dynamic that's not a subject to change, as say a romantic relationship. So that's what that's sort of where the two of them begin.
1: And you mentioned that the the novel relates Yejide's uh, early attempts in the marriage to become pregnant. Hmm. What would be the significance of her being childless in Yoruba society?
3: I mean, I suppose it's... She, I mean, she's living in a society that places a lot you know, sort of premium, a lot of importance on having children, on procreating. And it's. I think it's relatively the same for a man and a woman. Even for a man, you face that pressure. You, you need to have children. You have to have children. But it's more difficult for a woman because... <laughs> while Akin can marry another wife and increases chances of having children, she's not. I mean, she can't marry another husband. It doesn't work both ways. And um, many times, and as is the case in this novel, The assumption is that the woman has done something wrong. She's the one who has a problem. Her character is not good enough. That something is wrong with her. So it's very, almost impossible for somebody to be in that situation the way she is. And not sort of internalize all this messaging that she has a problem. She's, there must be something wrong with her. That's why she hasn't had any children And um, the fact that a woman's identity, after a certain age, is connected, is very linked to a position as a mother. And the respect that she gets in the community is often dependent on that. So it puts her in a very difficult position, the fact that she doesn't have children yet. and, And she feels that very acutely.
1: And so because of this, as you've mentioned, Akin is encouraged to take another wife, a second Mm -hmm. wife. Tell me something Mm -hmm. about this sort of system of polygamy that exists.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, this this book is set in the 1980s, and I think that... But even by that time, it wasn't as um, polygamy wasn't as common as it used to be. But it was it was something that was always a possibility. That I feel that even in the marriages where it didn't happen, just that possibility, I think sometimes it could hang over a marriage and dictate the power dynamics between the husband and the wife. So it's basically simple. It's that if a man wants, he could marry more than one wife and it wouldn't be bigger me. I mean, I suppose that today it's not as fashionable as it once was, but what I do think has carried over is that there isn't an expectation for men to be faithful in the way that um, women are expected to be faithful in a monogamous, in a supposed monogamous relationship. And I suppose the, the way people justify that also, oh, well, but at least he didn't take his second wife. So I, I think that extreme, that possibility, allows quite a bit of misbehaviour to happen.
1: And as you mentioned, we're talking about, you know, this is a, a relatively successful family and an urban yeah. family as well. Yeah. And the book explores these sort of ideas about these more traditional ideas of masculinity and femininity sort of coming into contact with modern nigeria
3: yeah so i mean i suppose the the thing is um that and i I suppose as you as you have in almost every society that times change and people sometimes people want to cling to the old way of doing things and sometimes people just want to try other new things um, so with this novel, Eugenie's mother-in-law in particular, is very open to, she's the one who sort of insists that her son should take a second wife, even though the couple, when they got married, sort of said to themselves, we're not going to do this. We, we love each other and we're going to just stay married to each other alone. And there's no other woman that's going to come into the situation. But it is, it's that the husband's mother, and I suppose the way she sees it is that She thinks it's just another option, and why shouldn't they explore it, you know? So there's there's that tension that exists between those two, the relationship between the mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law, and even between the mother-in-law and her son. And it's the question of how much autonomy is this family going to have from um, this woman? How much autonomy is this son going to have? from his mother, as modern as he is, is still um, sort of bound to her in that sense that she she can't threaten him either directly or implicitly because it is also a community that prides respect for the elderly and their all kinds of beliefs about what could happen if you don't respect your parents, you know, and all of that. So that, that tension does exist. And um, I suppose in the end what the whole figure out is that a bit of syncretism might be the way to walk through the issues that they're having with themselves and with um the older people in their
2: lives.
1: The book being set in the nineteen eighties means that this domestic drama plays out against political turmoil that's going on in the country. Tell me something about what was going on in those days.
3: So I mean in the nineteen eighties Nigeria was under military rule. It wasn't even that we hadn't been under military rule before. We had been on the military rule in the sixties and seventies and then we went back to democracy in the late seventies and then we were back under military rule again. It was that the crop of soldiers that took over power in the nineteen eighties were very clear about I think entrenching themselves in power and uh, were not apologetic in the way that their predecessors who had also been really um at being about being there. So the narrative is usually that somebody would take over power and basically say you know we're just here to stabilize things, we know that the the ideal is to have a democratic system of government. But then you you had a group of people come into power in the 80s who sort of slowly and very insidiously tried to act as if they had a legitimate claim to power. So one of them started using the title of president, which... No head of state before then had used. I mean, they, they would be head of state, they would be commander in chief of the armed forces, but they never quite called themselves presidents. I mean, that was sort of reserved for people that were actually elected. And um, they began to try to perpetuate themselves in power, and one of the ways they could do this was to instill fear. Um, populist. so uh, people started going there were bombs that went off that people believed had were planted by the government, and of journalists and all of that. So all of this is what was going on in the 1980s, and it sort of all comes to a head in 1993, where we had uh, an election that was then unknown by the government.
1: Okay, just one more thing from me then. So what does it mean to you that the book has been shortlisted for the Welcome Book Prize?
3: It's an honour. It's really an honour. And um, it's very special to me that it's, it's a surprise that, that's more scientific than all of that. I grew up in a family of people who were in the sciences, and I'm the only person sort of in the heart. So it just feels, it feels extra special, I think, because of that that perhaps the influence of growing up around people who were talking about some of those things actually <laughs> reflects in my work. So uh, I'm very happy about it.
1: So I've been talking to Ayabami Adebayo. We've been talking about her novel Stay With Me, which is out in paperback in the UK from Canongate now and is shortlisted for the 2018 Welcome Book Prize. Ayabami, thank you so much for sharing it with me.
3: Thank you so much, Neil.